Huda Thunkers, this is Shannon, and this week I'll be doing the recommendation section for the podcast. Um, I have been listening to, in addition to my fiance's wonderful podcast, another podcast called Crime Junkie. If you have listened to this podcast, you know what I'm talking about. This is edge of your seat, true crime type stuff, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, there are two people that host that podcast, Britt and Ashley Flowers. Britt kind of is the supporter for Ashley Flowers. Ashley Flowers is the one that does all the research, uh, regarding the true crime documentaries. Um, these ladies are extremely successful. They have actually started several other podcasts off of this podcast, including The Deck. I think there was one about paranormal activity and paranormal crimes. Um, and then there was an additional smaller one that was kind of carved out of that. Um, so if you're a true crime junkie like me, hop on the bandwagon and become a crime junkie today. Okay, howdy Huda Thunkers. This is the host of the Huda Thunk It podcast, Zeb, coming at you. Um, coming at you with the episode about Michael Rockefeller. If you've never heard of the Rockefellers, uh, you should have. They're basically American royalty. Now, uh, the recommendation segment. Hope you enjoyed that. I plan for Shannon to record it. And if we remember to get her recorded, then that's what you heard. If not, then I maybe recorded it right before I published it but anyway should have heard shannon and thank you honey um and now for the main event michael clark rockefeller was the youngest of five children raised by mary todd hunter rockefeller and nelson rockefeller he was born on may 18th of 1938 mike's father nelson was a new york governor and former u.s vice president so pretty important he was the grandson of american financer john d rockefeller jr and the great-grandson of Standard Oil co-founder John D. Rockefeller. So, like I said, some of the most important and wealthy people to have ever existed, the Rockefellers are like American royalty. Basically, Mike was, you know, American, an American prince. His story is one of those bios I read and can't help uh, but self-reflect by saying to myself, look at all the amazing crap this dude did in his life uh, by the age of like 25. What am I doing with mine? Oh my gosh. But then I realized... I wasn't born into one of the top 10 most wealthiest families to have ever existed. Also, I realize I'm a happy person, and that's what matters most to me. Moving on, uh, I'm not as productive as Mike Rockefeller or Alexander the Great, but I am a happy guy doing a tiny little podcast. After attending the Buckley School in New York and graduating from the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, where he was a student senator and exceptional varsity wrestler, uh, Rockefeller graduated cum laude from Harvard University <laughs> with an A.B. in history and economics. So quite impressive. Wrestling, cum laude, all that good stuff. Though his father expected him to follow in his footsteps and help manage the family's vast business empire, Michael was a quieter, more artistic spirit. When he graduated from Harvard in 1960, he wanted to do something more exciting than sit around in boardrooms and conduct meetings. He was, uh, had an adventurous soul. In 1960, he served for six months as a private in the U.S. Army and then went on an expedition for Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethno Ethnology uh, to study the Danny tribe of Western Netherlands, New Guinea. 
It was then known as Western Netherlands or Dutch New Guinea. It is a massive island off the coast of Australia. Today, New Guinea <clears throat> is uh, the world's second largest island. Doesn't all fly the same flag, so there's, it's split up in different countries. New Guinea is administratively divided into two parts. Its western half comprises the Indonesian provinces of Papua and West Papua. Um, I'm probably not pronouncing that correct. Collectively, formerly formerly called uh, Iranian Jaya, Yaya, <laughs> it's uh, and its eastern half comprises the major part of Papua New Guinea, um, an independent country since 1975. It is an island of immense cultural and biological diversity. It's known for its beaches and coral reefs. Inland are active volcanoes, granite. Um, Mount Wilhelm, dense rainforest, and hiking routes like the Kokoda Trail. There are also traditional tribal villages, many with their own languages. So, super diverse area. Like I said, second largest island on the in the on the planet. It's a um, really cool place. Um, lots going on there. Michael Rockefeller's expedition filmed Dead Birds. That's the name of an ethnographic documentary movie produced by Robert Gardner, and for which Rockefeller was the sound recordist. So he's on this adventure. He's making a documentary, and he's the sound guy. And I'm sure he's loving it a lot more than being in boardrooms. Michael said he wanted to do something that hadn't been done before, and to bring a major collection to New York. And said Carl Heider, a graduate student of uh, anthropology at Harvard, who worked with Michael B. or Michael by collecting, he was referring to art. Um, or primitive art, as they called it at that time, basically art from these tribal people. Michael's father, Nelson Rockefeller, was a prolific art collector. He had recently opened the Museum of Primitive Art and its ex and exhibits, including Nigerian, Aztec, and Mayan works. And this seemed to captivate uh, young Michael. He wanted to contribute some as well. Rockefeller. And a friend briefly left the expedition to study the Asmat tribe of southern Netherlands, New Guinea, at the time. After returning home from the Peabody expedition, Rockefeller returned to New Guinea uh, to study the Asmat and collect some Asmat art. I've got some pictures on the blog of him enjoying himself, uh, chilling, playing some drums while people run around him, and he's got this great, genuine smile on his face. Um, looks like a good time. Michael's upbringing had already given him ample experience with travel. He had traveled extensively already, living in Japan and Venezuela for months at a time, and he craved something new. He wanted to embark on an anthropological expedition to a place few would ever see—not um, just Japan or Venezuela. He wanted to go. In the thick of it, in the bushes.、Uh, by the 1960s,、uh, Dutch colonial authorities and missionaries had already been on the island for almost a decade, but many Asmat people had never seen a white man. With severely limited contact with the outside world, the Asmat、um, people believed the land beyond their island to be. Inhabited by spirits, and when white people came from across the sea, they saw them as some kind of supernatural being, something different, not just you know humans with different skin. When Mike Rockefeller and the other white people with him wandered into their territory, they were an unwelcome curiosity to, to, to say, you know, they, they were curious about them, but they weren't really necessarily like open arms about it. The locals put up with the team's photography, but they didn't allow the white researchers to purchase cultural artifacts like、uh, bisti poles or intricately carved wooden pillars that served as part of Asmat rituals and religious rites. And kind of makes sense. You're not going to buy those. They they sound kind of really important to their culture.、Uh, Michael was undeterred. In the Asmat people, he found what he felt was a fascinating violation of the norms of Western society, and he was more anxious than ever to bring their world back to his. At the time. 
War between villages was common, and Michael learned that Azmat warriors often took the heads of their enemies and ate their flesh. In certain regions, Azmat men would engage in ritual homosexual sex, and in bonding rites, um, they would sometimes drink each other's urine. So, a lot different from what Michael experienced growing up. His journal read, "Now this is wild and somehow more remote country." Than what I have ever seen before. When the initial scouting mission concluded, Michael Rockefeller was energized. He wrote out his plans to create a detailed anthropological study of the Azmat and display a collection of their art in his father's museum. He was determined to do so. It's the desire to do something adventurous at a time when frontiers, in the re- real sense of the word, are disappearing. Michael Rock- C. Rockefeller said, "He spent his time." In Netherlands, New Guinea, actively engaged with the culture and the art while recording anthropographic data. In one of his letters、uh, home, he wrote, "I'm having a thoroughly exhausting but most exciting time here. The Azmat is like a huge puzzle, like with the variations in ceremony and art style forming the pieces." My trips are enabling me to comprehend, if only in a superficial, rudimentary manner, the nature of this puzzle. That's what Michael C. Rockefeller said. So he's talking about this like it's it's intriguing him to the utmost and energizing him. He likes how different it is from where he grew up. He just wants to get away. It sounds like he wants to get away from the life he came from and learn as much as he can about the world. And this is probably the most remote he's ever been. Probably the most remote any of us will ever be. Although adventure seems to fill those of us who crave it with an immense sense of purpose and thrill, it is also dangerous. In fact, the danger is what makes it so damn fun. At least I think so. While attributes such as experience, grit, strength, and intellect can partially negate the dangers of adventure, even the most battle-hardened adventurers are still mere humans and therefore can fall victim to these dangerous circumstances. Mike. Was very intelligent, strong, and had all the resources imaginable at his disposal, and yet he did fall victim to the dangers of adventure. That's what we're about to get into. On November 17th of 1961, Rockefeller and Dutch anthropologist Rene Vassing were in a 40-foot, 12-meter dugout canoe, about three nautical miles, or six kilometers, or three miles, from the shore, when their double pontoon boat was swamped and overturned. Their two local guides swam for help, but it was slow in coming. After drifting for some time, early in November 19th of 1961, Rockefeller said to Vassing, "I think I can make it." And he then swam for shore. Those are the last words anyone ever heard. The boat was an estimated 12 nautical miles from the shore when he made the attempt to swim to safety. So that's about 14 regular miles swimming to shore. That's a long way,、um, even though Mike was young, very athletic. Supporting the theory that he died from exposure, exhaustion, or drowning—that's what they think happened to him. Vossing was rescued the next day, but Rockefeller was never seen again, despite an intensive and lengthy search.、Um, at the time, Rockefeller's disappearance was a major world news item. His body was has never been found ever. Rockefeller was declared legally dead in 1964. Rich and politically connected, Michael's family ensured that no expense was spared in the search for their young Rockefeller. And for the young Rockefeller, ships, airplanes, and helicopters scoured the region, searching for Michael or some sign of his fate. Even his parents flew to New Guinea to help in 
the search for their son. The Dutch interior minister was quoted saying, there is no longer any hope of finding Michael Rockefeller alive. That was just nine days after he had gone missing. His official cause of death was written down as drowning. Then he just lost it to the river. While that is the official story, it's not the end of our story here today. And could you imagine if it was? <laughs> I just did a podcast. Uh, rich, rich boy goes on an adventure and disappears, never to be seen again. The end. Thanks for coming in. Good night. Tune in next time. No. Uh, now we delve into what most think happened to Michael C. Rockefeller. In 2014, Carl Hoffman, a reporter for the National Geographic, revealed in his book, Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, of colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest for primitive art. Uh, that uh, many of the Netherlands inquiries into the matter rustled, or resulted, <laughs> rustled, resulted in evidence that the Azmat killed Michael. So that's this guy Carl Hoffman's uh, theory. Apparently, there were two Dutch missionaries that had lived among the Azmat people for years. They spoke their language well and were told by the Azmat people that they had killed a white man around the same time. Based on the missionaries' um, description, the Asmat people believed their own had killed Michael Rockefeller. There was on, also a police officer by the name uh, Vim Dan Deval. Vim, Vim Van Deval. <laughs> Interesting name. Um, all those v, V's, or no, two of those V's are actually W's, one of the V's is an actual V. So, Wim Van De, De Whale. Vim Van Deval. Anyway. <laughs> This police officer also was convinced Michael uh, had been killed by the Osmot people. He supposedly was given a skull by the Osmot that they claimed was Michael's. Uh, but the police report was classified and never shown to the Rockefeller, Rockefeller family. They were told anything beyond his disappearance was mere rumor and not true conspiracy. How Michael Rockefeller died at the hands of cannibals, according to Carl Hoffman, over 50 years later, is this here. Carl traveled to New Guinea, specifically to Osjet. Ostjanep. Ostjanep. Um, this is the specific place where Michael went disappeared. The Osmot people, it's like saying the American people. You can be in Brooklyn, you can be in LA. So it's, this is the this is a specific part of the Osmot people. Ostjanep. It's one of the villages. Apparently, his guide overheard a couple of locals say something like, don't talk about the white American that died here, or something like that. Now, this is 2014. This is a really long time. Mike went missing in 1961. This is 2014. So it's over 50 years later. And they're, they're supposed to still be talking about the American that died. I don't know. A little skeptic of that. I find it a bit hard to believe who talks about something that happened 50 years ago. But whatever. I wasn't there. Carl was there. And he asked his interpreter to pry. Get into it a little bit. The interpreter asked who the man was that the locals were talking about, and he was told it was Michael Rockefeller. He learned that it was common knowledge on the island that the Asmat people of Ostjanep killed a white man, but they shouldn't talk about it for fear of revenge or whatever from the white tribe. But Carl and his interpreter also learned more about Michael's supposed murder. Just three years before Michael arrived on Ostjanep, there was war between the Asmat people. The Ostjanep people were having it out with the on Desip, and dozens of men were killed on each side. So two villages went to, uh, to war, lots of men died. The Dutch had just recently taken control of the island, and they wanted to keep the new land as colonizable as possible. So they wanted to, you know, keep it peaceful. So the Dutch colonial government tried to put an end to the violence, because when foreigners try to put an end to age-old wars in other places, it always works out just fine, right? No, 
doesn't. But they tried. The Dutch tried to disarm the Ostjanep tribe, but it didn't go well. The two cultures were so different that communications were bound to break down, and they did. It ended with the Dutch open firing on the Ostjanep people. This was one of the Ostjanep people's first time coming to contact with white people and Western cultures. It was definitely the first time with firearms. And what happened? The village uh, watched as four of their Jews uh, or war leaders were shot and killed. So some of their most powerful dudes dead. Try to imagine. Uh, what their impression of white people was at the time. Just three years later, and a young Michael Rockefeller is swimming ashore right up to these people. So, got hairy. Well, according to one of those Dutch missionaries, the Ostjanep tribes people um, who first saw Michael in the water thought he was a crocodile, but quickly realized it was a, it was a Dutch colonizer, or a Tuan, as the locals called them. So, basically, Dutch colonizer, Tuan to them. These first people on the banks to see Michael were Jeus themselves, those uh, war elderly war leaders. Uh, but not just any Jeus, um, they were the sons of the men who were gunned down just three years prior. They had a score to settle, basically. People of Ostjanep, you're all you've always you're always talking about headhunting Tuans. Well, here is your chance," cried one of the Jeus from the bank. Uh, apparently. At first, the villagers were hesitant, probably for the consequences of their actions, but it wasn't long before their spears were thrust into the exhausted Michael, who had just swam 12, 14 miles um, through the water, through the you know, raging water. Then it got pretty gruesome. Uh, once he was dead, they cut off Michael's head, cracked open his skull, and ate his brain like a coconut. They cooked his body on a spit over a fire and ate his flesh. No part of his body was spared, went to waste, none of it was spared. His thigh bones were used to make daggers, and his tibias were sharpened to make fishing spear points. His blood was drained, the Ashenep tribesmen bathed in it while they performed ritual dances and sex acts. This all sounds like some sick and evil act, and maybe it is by some objectionably kind of objectionable kind of uh, judgment uh, that we humans don't have access to. But in the minds of these tribesmen, this was the right thing to do. It was their belief their ideology, um, and the Oceanet people believed in a balance of the world, and that they should restore the balance themselves. To them, the white man tribe had killed four of their highest-ranking warriors. It was setting the balance of the world back to normal when they took Michael's power. They consumed his body and absorbed his energy, uh, the very same energy that had been taken from them. Again, this is all according to Carl Hoffman in his book, written in 2014, from a translator who was talking to Dutch missionaries who heard it from the the Asmat people. So, so information there is kind of off. This is quite a long line of, of this information to pass along, kind of like that telephone game to me. Also, 50 years is a long time for information to be distorted or fabricated altogether. So who knows if this really happened? Though many Asmat people told this story to Hoffman, no one who took part in the death would come forward. It simply said, simply all simply said it was a story that they had heard so they didn't hear from firsthand from anyone actually saw it so people who were there told other osmot people who told missionaries who then told the other missionaries who then told the interpreter who then told carl you see why i'm having a hard time believing it but maybe some of it's true i don't know i wasn't carl i haven't i didn't go to new guinea aftermath uh, of course, the Ashenet people didn't just forget about it the next day. Uh, no, they couldn't, because it wasn't long at all before the search for Michael came to their doorstep. Remember, um, his mom and dad scoured the area with every ship, plane, and helicopter the Rockefeller fortune could buy. 
And for the Asbot people, this must have seemed like the equivalent of a U.S. A UFO army of UFOs landing on the White House lawn. They had never seen these type of vessels before. Not long after cholera swept through the Oshnep village and surrounding area, these villagers probably connected this sickness to the murder of the white man. So they thought they were being punished in all sorts of ways. Then, one day when Hoffman was in the village shortly before he returned to the U.S., he saw a man miming and killing as part of a story he was telling to another man. The tribesmen pretended to spear someone, shoot an arrow, and chop off his head. Hearing words relating to murder, Hoffman began to film. Uh, but the story was already over. He didn't get the story. Hoffman was, however, able to catch its epilogue on film. And the translation of the man who was telling the story of the murder and then chopping off the head said this, apparently. Don't you tell this story to any other man or any other village, because this story is only for us. Don't speak. Don't speak and tell the story. I hope you remember it and you must keep it keep this for us. I hope, I hope this is for you and you only. Don't talk to anyone forever, to other people or another village. If people question you, don't answer. Don't talk to them because the sto this story is only for you. If you tell it to them, you'll die. I'm afraid you will die. You'll be dead. Your people will be dead if you tell this story. You, you keep this story in your house to yourself, I hope, forever, forever. Does Carl Hoffman's story read like complete malarkey? Yes, to me it does. It seems too sensational to be true. However, I wasn't there, I didn't go to New Guinea. I'm not gonna go to New Guinea. Sometimes sensational and horrible things do happen, so I don't know. Should I have saved this episode for October and make it part of my Who'd Thunk It Fright Fest, where I post only spooky and scary stories all month long? Perhaps, but I couldn't help myself. The story, you know, surprised me. I couldn't believe I had never heard of it before. Michael C. Rockefeller was practically American royalty, like I said, and a lot of people believe he was eaten by cannibals. That's kind of nuts. So, hope you enjoyed. That's the official and the unofficial story. The official story stopped with, he disappeared, declared dead 1964. Unofficial story, he swam ashore, was speared, shot with an arrow, head chopped off, eaten, bathed in, bathed in his blood, all that craziness. That's the unofficial story. And I guess there is some evidence, I guess, with that film. I don't, I didn't see the film. I just heard the epilogue translation, read it online. So you believe what you choose to believe. Anyway, thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Until next week, catch you next time.